So once the new website was up, the first thing I had to do was start getting the word out. So I called and called and called all my friends. Every single one of them, I called them up. Here are a few of the phone calls that happened, just to kind of give you an idea of how it went. Directions. This is Becky. How may I help you? Hey, Becky. It's Mark Levinson. Hey, how are you? I just thought I'd give you a heads up that there's a new website that I just rolled out. Have you already been there yet? Have you heard about it? No. What website? Okay. It's called reefaddict.com. Yep. And it's perfect for addicts like you and I. <laughs> Great. So you should go check it out right this minute. Okay. All right. Are you typing it in? Yes, I am. Awesome. Okay, so while you're on there, I'm going to go call a bunch of my other friends. So i got to go. All right. All right. Sounds Thanks good. So Thank much. you Yep. All right. Bye. bye. Hello? Hi, Christina. It's Mark. Hey, Mark. What's up? Have you seen the new website yet? I just looked at it today. I haven't even logged in yet. Awesome. Well, you go do that. I'm going to let you go. Thanks. Bye. Bye. It's Mark. Hi, Mark. What are you doing? Have you been to the new website yet? Which new website? Reefaddicts.com. No, I haven't. Oh, you should check it out right now. Go right this second. Okay, I'll go right now. Okay, now that you're on there, I'm going to let you go. i got to call a whole bunch more people. I think you're going to love this website. I'll talk to you later. All righty. Thanks <laughs> a lot. Bye. Bye. So after calling hundreds and hundreds of people, I decided that was enough. I was hoping that the word would get out through one another, through the networking systems of all the clubs across the nation, and the website has rolled out to be a beautiful affair. <laughs> Many people are really checking it out and enjoying it, and in the meantime, it's time to launch the podcast. So I want to go ahead and introduce you guys to Drew, who has come on to give us a little synopsis of what it was like on our road trip to Houston. Hey, Drew, I'm really glad that I got to catch up with you before the podcast released because I wanted to have you bring us back to that day and tell us how it all played out. It was a good time. We got down there, got to Houston. Uh, the drive wasn't as bad as I don't think we thought it would be. Of course, getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning in order to meet by 5 was was wonderful. That was crazy. Uh, and then that restaurant took forever to get out of. We, we definitely got overcharged. It took way too long to get out of the restaurant in the, right. the morning. That One more time. Yeah, yeah, that was an unexpected moment, but, uh, you know, Mark rolling with his hundreds, so... Uh, yeah, I roll with the hundreds. <laughs> six o'clock in the morning before we get started. Right. So, uh, but the drive down wasn't bad at all. We got we met up at uh, one of the reefer's houses down there in Houston. It was a good time. Uh, I had a little club club meeting with a presentation. Uh, and we met, met up with Eric and Brian, decided to go get a bite to eat. Uh, apparently, where we were going, which was, a, I believe, a brother-in-law of Eric's, uh, we went to go meet him or to follow them, uh, and we ended up cutting through multiple parking lots and almost getting run over because the place we were going, the brother-in-law's, was apparently closed. Uh, we ended up in a, I think it was a Thai restaurant. Yeah, I remember that. I wasn't sure what to do with the menu. <laughs> yeah, uh, the menu, if I remember correctly, it was one page, one sided. Uh, it had it had some interesting things on it, um, that I obviously couldn't pronounce. Right. And, uh, but I mean, there was chicken, and there was some 
chicken and <laughs> a, a simple meal. But it's like Eric had ordered there his whole life. He just walks in and just yeah. like, da, 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 da. and I'm yeah, just like, I'm, what did you choose? You know, I, I'm surprised <laughs> they didn't say, oh, Mr. Eric, we have your usual table ready for you, sir. <laughs> The only thing that upset me about this restaurant was there was no fortune cookie, and then you're like, Mark, it's not a Chinese food restaurant or whichever well, gets Chinese. Whoever gets fortune cookies out, apparently we were not at that place. Yeah, no fortune cookies and no soy sauce, which I didn't know yeah. if it was improper to ask for soy sauce or if that's not kosher. So. Right. <laughs> kosher. We went without, we, we without uh, soy sauce. I remember that. So no we're really diverse food. when it comes to our culinary desires. Yeah, apparently in uh in Houston, they don't do soy sauce and fortune cookies. In, in Dallas, you would have definitely gotten that. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, getting back, you know, it was, it was kind of nice to exchange stories over lunch, you know, just kind of catching up and everybody, you know, just seeing where they had been. And of course, Eric's always got some adventure that he's been on, or I, I don't know if you can call it an adventure or some trial he's been to. So He's got some good stories. I think my favorite story from that lunch was when he was telling us how – he couldn't feed his tank without getting electrocuted. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and I think I've heard that whole story before. I think I heard it. Oh, last, really? <laughs> last time we had met up for a lunch or a dinner, I think I had heard the electric, electrocution story. You know, if not, maybe it's just me being back on my time. So I've shocked myself. Well, so. just to sum it up really quick, he basically had a problem with whatever was happening under his tank, under the floorboards, like in the home wiring. And apparently, like, salt creep or something got down into his electrical, and he couldn't find the source of the problem. And if he was near his tank and tried to feed the tank, he'd get shocked. So he'd stand across the room and throw the food into the aquarium. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was my my basic understanding is I guess it was a pier and beam home, and underneath it where all the electrical ran. If he was barefoot, he got shocked when he stuck his finger in the tank, you know. But he could never figure out why. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was eventually when they pulled up the floorboards or something. That's when they discovered the problem. I mean, that must not have been fun. No, probably not an easy project to take on. So. Yeah, especially when you have no clue what the problem is. But, yeah, he finally discovered it. Now he can safely touch his tank again. But it just makes me laugh. I just picture Borneman throwing food across the room and missing the tank. Yeah, you know he wasn't the most athletic child. So uh. I want to see the light fixture. It's all dripping with mice and crap. <laughs> All burnt on. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so tell me a couple of things. What was something that really stood out to you about these guys? Uh, it's always interesting to, uh, as well to, to ride with Eric, or uh, I, just depending on whichever one you get in the car with, or you're following. Uh, Eric drives, of course, the, uh, the car that runs on his own willpower. Uh, clown car? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's like a clown car, but what, it runs on his uh, self-esteem, I guess. His own self-esteem powers it. I like Ace and Willpower. Now, was that Brian they were talking about, or you were talking about Borneman? No, that's Eric. Eric and his little Willpower mobile. It was a tiny little car. It was a little mini, super mini Cooper, so. And then the other car was decorated with... Yeah, and then there, are we going back into the stories now? Yeah. Uh, and Brian's car is always interesting. I, I got in the backseat of his car, and it's got the little window, window sticker on it with the uh, Winnie the Pooh character to shade the, his children. And you can tell he's got young children because you've got to push the French fries out of the way and the ketchup packets oh. that are half open, and uh, that's always a fun time. So oh, you know, man. you never know what you're going to get out with stuffed in your pockets. So, well, you know, when you think about it, you know, just because they're famous people in the industry doesn't mean they're not normal guys with families. 
Yeah. <laughs> Especially when you watch Eric crawl into his little Mini Cooper of, you know, that, self-pride that he did it runs on, self-pride. So. I'm telling you, it was so such a small car. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think you have to get out of it to change your mind. I mean... <laughs> I did see his feet sticking out of the bottom as he pedaled, and uh, he had to crank it up to get it going. So. It was just so adorable. It's such a cute little car. You just want to put it in your pocket when you, it's time to go inside, you know? We just find <laughs> out it was, the, it was the turbo edition, though, or super speeder. He just speed. told you that. You know that's uh, not true. <laughs> he just thought the little emblem to put on the back. Okay, it and then the interview to... itself, did you like that? Were you having fun at that, or was it boring to you? I mean, come on, everyone's about to hear it, you know, and they want to know yeah. Drew's reaction. <laughs> you know, I always find it interesting to, to listen to the, well, to discuss, I guess, the different things, uh, especially uh, what needs to be done with captive captive breeding and obviously captive brooding of corals. Um, and Eric, so Eric and especially Brian, they both got a, a very a very interesting take on it and where you know, where the hobby is headed and where it needs to head in order to sustain itself. Um, I know we went into great detail at one point about the uh, the cardinal fish, the Bangai cardinals, and, you know, where they're at currently and where they where they need to be and the fact that we do need to get into captive, the captive breeding and promote it more. I mean, the fact that they're already being bred in captivity, and now it's time to basically, you know, stop taking them from the wild, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. So that's pretty much it. That kind of sets the stage for you guys. So now we're going to roll right into that interview, and you can just sit back and listen, and it's going to be Brian Plankus and Eric Borneman and myself and Drew, of course, and we hope that you enjoy this next segment. Am I just sitting here? You can chime in. When they start getting boring, you can, like, poke them with sharp things. <laughs> we will get boring, no, too. Yeah. <clears throat> this, is not, this is not blazingly exciting uh, talk. Wow, you sound better when you get really close. Maybe I should move closer. Well, I was under the is Drew there? impression this is more of a conversation kind of thing. So like, you're not too. expecting us to sit here and no, it's conversational. That's chat about stuff, right? This is wow. Because otherwise, way. it'd be easier just to do you and me on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't like doing phone ones because it sounds terrible. Yeah. <laughs> all the way down here just for some reason. <laughs> right, well, because I'm saying the presentation. We'll just bring Mark in on a conference call. Yeah, and right. we're talking like 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. So, listen, you guys are going to be on the first podcast for Reef Addicts. And yeah. the reason is because I've been trying to get you on Reefcast for over three years. And it took you so long to finally commit to this moment that I have a whole new website. Such yes. a lie. <laughs> Such a lie. I mean, you're so busy. Uh, we, uh, we had... We had issues on our past trips to Dallas that circumvented me actually doing this. And, yes, we have had this plan for a long time, so it yeah. is good to be doing it. So I'm really glad you're on. Well, I'm very glad to be here. So, and let's, I guess we should all introduce. I'm Mark Levinson. I go by MeLev online. Drew Richardson, DFW Mass. All right. Is that what you go by, or is that who you are? I go by Drew. I'll <laughs> <laughs> answer to many things. You can call Drew, Andrew, Andy, AU. <laughs> Uh, this uh, I'm Eric Borneman, and I generally go by Eric Borneman online. Sometimes Eric Ego. <laughs> and I'm uh, Brian Plankus. So I also go by Brian Plankus online to keep things simple and uh, from the Reef Stewardship Foundation. Well, that's something I keep hearing the name of, and I don't know anything about it. So I was hoping that you could tell us about it and 
if we can get involved, if it's just something we should be aware of, like MASNA, you know, what's the story here? Well, the story is, Mark, you should have been at the meeting where we did all this, but you were out of town. Speaking um, to so, another club. Right, and was, wasn't I that feel, video? I feel like I've heard of this before. Yeah, I think they ran video, too. In fact, we have a whole website and information, so technically... You should know all about this. Well, I have done some homework, but I really was hoping to hear from the horses now. <laughs> <laughs> my understanding is Brian is not afraid of microphones. He came up to our club a few years ago and talked about Project Dibs. Uh-huh. And yes. he was very fun because he made it a game show. Yes, I should have made this a game show today, but I did not. Um, yes, Project Dibs was what originally found, uh, was kind of the original formation of what turned into... Uh, Reef Stewardship Foundation, but Project Dibs is a lot about um, trying to breed things in tanks and trying to uh, find species that could be uh, done sustainably for the trade, but um, as I talked about in the Dallas presentation was at that point in time, I didn't really know how serious the condition about coral reefs in the wild was, and uh, it's very frightening. Conditions were. Conditions were. Yes. And Eric is also our editor for the Reef Stewardship Foundation. <laughs> and he now does it both in print and in audio. Uh, but the, the conditions are very serious for reefs, and we, we realized that we needed to do more than just uh, worry about a couple of species that we could get in captivity. And so that's kind of how uh, the Reef Stewardship Foundation started um, coming out and being actually formed as a 501c3 nonprofit, and that's when Eric joined. Uh, so we would have a scientific expert that would bring us along. And um, What made you start Project Dibs? Project Dibs was about trying to take uh, individual action to try to do something better to help improve was that part the of hobby. Your, was that part of your studies, or, or was it something you decided to do on your own? Um, no, it was not part of my... Not part of my studies at uh, University of Houston. It was just something I decided to do on the side, and um, it all started when we were um, when I was sitting down in front of a friend's reef tank, and we were just looking at all the uh, gorgeous stuff in his tank. And and um, Joe, who was one of the yeah. original uh, members of Project Dibs, and and that's when. We discovered that a couple of different things were breeding in his tanks, and he had he had thousands of them. And we're like, how did that happen? And so it was just fascinating to see that things could breed in captivity, and and um, some on their own without any intervention from hobbyists. So things. Well, that what things? Breed. Red planaria? What are uh, we talking about here? <laughs> no. uh, there was a species of snail, and then there was also a species of starfish, a mm -hmm. uh, brittle star, actually. The snail was a mm -hmm. nudibranch that was found on Montepora. <laughs> oh, man, I can grow those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the worm. I saw it on eBay for 10000 yeah. each. And, and yeah. there was a there was this really cool worm that blended in with a cropper. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that did he say acropora? No. I did I did Montipora for you, Mark. It's not just me. It's all the listeners. Yeah, okay, well it's Montipora then. I'm gonna stick all with all those guns. poor kids. How do you I say Pachamakora? Huh? Pachamakora? <laughs> Samakara. Oh my god. Samakara? <laughs> over your rice. Well, <laughs> Samakora sounds like Sam's... You're talking about like Sumatra, an right? <laughs> I, right? 
Sam Acora sounds like an Italian guy named or, or an Irish guy named oh, no. Sam. I think you're crazy. <laughs> so did you kind of like corner the market on mispronunciation? Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you don't run into a lot of people say a crop have you? No. Oh, actually, you do run into a lot of people. <laughs> Not in the hobby. <laughs> well, yeah, we're hobbyists. Yeah, but you guys do vodka in your tank, too. You can't against our will. Right. I mean, my you theologist book home at home. You pour vodka in your tanks. I mean, should I expect you to say a crop rock? No. I mean, think about it. We like to call our corals things that Tyree names them. <laughs> Super purple monster eater. See? I'm going to call it monstra I wouldn't call it... I wouldn't call it... Yes. Purple monstra. Yeah. No. Mm. Anyway, Eric, you know, five minutes into it, and he already discovered our hidden purpose: turning them all into scientists. Yeah. No. Uh, no, we're gonna go kicking and screaming. <laughs> right. I know. Dragging I scientists once. Dragging them foot. Very head, underrated experience. <laughs> dragging them foot first, screaming and and banging into the 21st century. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, that I, that cleared up my question on Project Deb. So mm. now, uh, and wh- what did you talk about at the meeting? Um, well, the, the meeting, I started out with just saying that now that we've changed, we've gone from that initial narrow focus to the Reef Stewardship Foundation, where we, we now have three areas that we look at, which is, one is aquaculture, which is, that's where Project Dibs kind of got folded into, but we're going to be expanding beyond what we were trying with Project Dibs. And then we have an education program area, which is uh, strictly about uh, education in the school system, either public schools, K through 12 or university level, uh, and we actually did a, a major project on that last year because, as I'm sure every hobbyist is aware, 2008 was the International Year of the Reef, and it was a big... Seriously, that. were you aware of that? Yeah. yeah, I heard about it about a month ago. Not that you... Were yeah. you aware? <laughs> about a month ago, I was made aware. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> about a year yeah. more. No, I remember that. that. Yeah, well, one of the things we discussed at that meeting, though, we asked for a raise of hands of how many people knew it was the year of reef, and very few people raised their hands, and we all agreed that it was not a very effective tool. Um, I I don't think it created a lot of awareness about reefs in general, despite the fact it was the International Year of Reef. Yeah, and I kind of said that as a a joke, but it's when we surveyed the, we had uh, 169 kids that participated in our our school project. They were uh, high school kids. we surveyed them, and one of the 169 had heard it was the International Year of the Reef in 2008. So the word didn't get out. Yeah. And so uh, that's one of the things that we need to look at in more well, The problem is that you that. don't want people like Rihanna singing about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're yeah. really caught up in pop culture. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's something we actually have been looking at, not only not only uh, through Research Foundation, but also through CCOR. And in terms of getting a lot of our projects funding funded, is looking at celebrity models who are active spokespeople for certain issues. Like uh, Sigourney Weaver's just put out put out a movie about ocean acidification. Leonardo DiCaprio uh, also very big into ocean conservation. Daryl Hannah is into uh, marine mammals. So you I know, remember her in Splash. Yeah. <laughs> Ironically, she yeah. she grew into that role quite well. Yeah. But, Great mermaid. But, but finding finding somebody like that with that sort of notoriety really does help uh, bring an issue to the forefront. Absolutely. And, and, and it's really a problem um, looking. I mean, I've learned so much working with Brian in terms of education because obviously that's not my my area. But I, I'm I'm amazed at the state at the degraded state of education in this country. And the level of science awareness, much less something like ocean literacy. I mean, it's, it's things that I learned in the fifth, sixth, seventh grade 
these high school students have never been exposed to. Was that in a private school or public school? That was in a private school, but it was a private school in Alabama, so it might as well have been public school. Well, no, I don't know. I went to a private school in Los Angeles, and we had to do world geography and things that mattered, and when I came to Texas, it was like the least thing they cared about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, we had to learn all about, you know, state history, and just basic biology we had had, had, and these students in in a fairly good public high school in the Houston district really had very little exposure to even most basic of sciences, much less any sort of environmental awareness, which I thought, you know, take away the pop culture aspect of it. I mean, environmental issues do come to the forefront of the media time and time again. I mean, one in one way or the other, and yet it's getting lost. It's it's not, yeah, there's... not getting, it's not, it's not grabbing these kids. Well, the science classes aren't interesting. I mean, when you think about yeah. what is being taught in science, if I could have learned the things I've learned with my take in the last 10 years mm. in school, I'd probably been more excited to come to class, more excited to learn something new. I might, might not have been that interesting. I don't know. I seem to like it more now maybe because there's animals involved. At the time, it was book smarts and right. you know how a frog ticks. I don't care. You know, I don't keep right. frogs. Right. Yeah, so, it's, that's a real problem with science education in this country is, is a lot of it's been uh, done towards standards, and so you've got certain standards you have to teach. And it's generally out of a textbook that the school has to purchase, and, and it's very dry, and there's no real context to it, and so you don't know. You're losing all the exciting things, and I mean, we just had simple tanks in the classrooms with just coral in it. That was it, just three different species of coral that the students uh, monitored their growth and the measurements, uh, took measurements of the growth to figure out how fast the corals were growing. Tell us what three corals. And, uh, Samakra, Pulsilopora, Pulsilopora, and Zoanthids. Oh, I thought you were going to say Zinnia because of the movement. Mm, no. Zoanthids. I thought they were Zoanthids. Zoanthids. Zoos! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or Zoes for those that like toes. Yeah. All right, sorry. And they were just fascinated by it because most of them had never seen coral, at least yeah. in person. and. Never had to take care of it, and it was they at the beginning they were very excited, and there needs to be more hands-on exciting stuff in classrooms, and so that's one of the things we're trying to we're trying to, to find work that on. hook. Too. Well, you said K to twelfth grade, but yeah, I would think the younger grades are more receptive because they haven't had to deal with coolness. Very good question, and yeah. there's an answer to that too. Yeah, the, um, depends on which answer you're talking I, about. I want, I want but, the answer of when kids get their environmental ethics. Ah, yes. Um, if you look at if you look at all of the research that's been done in the past 30, 40 years, um, kids get their environmental ethic and their fascination for nature when they're in elementary school and the beginning of middle school. And so if you're trying to get people interested in the environment and staying interested in the environment, you've got to hit them early. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so we did this first one with high school because that's the way the funding worked out. We got a small grant, and, the, and they're, it's just the way it worked out. Um, we're definitely interested in getting into the lower grades because that's when you can have an impact. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, um, I, I remember going to the school uh, science lab because I didn't have a microscope. And I said, do you mind if I look at some stuff from my aquarium under your microscope? And uh, I brought live sand, and I brought phytoplankton, and I brought brain shrimp. And... The teacher was fascinated. He liked it. And this was an empty room because I went after school with them, you know. And I thought, why are you just putting this in your classroom and teaching your students this? This is interesting stuff, you know. Yeah, no, it's true. Microscopic life is one one of the hooks that is is very popular. Okay, so you're trying to get younger grades because it's easier to get them to listen. 
Yes. Right. And, and um, they don't need to have a very advanced mind in order to understand the science that we're that we're looking at. If upper upper elementary and middle school can can handle the science. And the other thing that's really critical is if you look at the number of kids that are interested in science, it plummets right at seventh or eighth grade, and that's where a lot of the uh, that's where a lot of the standards come in, and that's where all this book learning comes in and practicing for the test. And when I took science in high school, I took it just before all the standards came in, and so we did all the fun stuff. We we actually had an aquarium in our classroom, mm -hmm. and we we did a lot of hands-on looking at cool stuff and. Um, that's just not, it's not done very much anymore. And I couldn't, if I was a kid in middle school or high school, having to learn stuff out of a textbook and practice page, a test. 450 page boring textbook yeah. with drawings in it. And yeah, yeah I wouldn't be interested in science either. Well, yeah, and, 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 1970. Yeah. <laughs> but well, you know, there, there are a lot of classical academics and I, and I, and I do sympathize with them that people should learn to read and, and be good at reading and pick up books and read uh, rather than getting the instant impulse of a visual image through TV or other media sources or internet. And yet you have to accept that these are the media forms of our time. So you have to work within that. You can't just shove it aside and say, that's not the way you should do it. Right. Because if it turns out that it's not effective, then it doesn't make any difference anyway. Now, is it frustrating sometimes to see, um, say, people in university levels classes um, turn in papers where if you ask them for references, every reference came from the internet because they won't actually go and actually pick up a physical book and read an article. Yeah, that's a little frustrating. Yeah, I think people are missing a lot of information that's out there simply by relying only on electronic means, but it's very clear to me that, that educational opportunities today have to take into account all the different media sources and use them effectively and, and not just make people go through really dry textbooks because it's just not going to lead anywhere. So if I'm getting too specific, just tell me, but are you trying to make this a main hold in all the schools across the nation? Are you trying to target public schools? Are you trying to target private schools? What's the game plan? Well, the, the game plan is initially public schools, but we're more looking at this from a research perspective just to figure out what works in, in the different high schools and middle schools that we're going to be doing projects in and trying to do it in enough schools that we can start saying this worked in a suburban school, this worked in an inner city school, this worked in a rural school. And well, so that it, it's, it wasn't just the fact that we put aquariums in, tank, in, in classrooms. Right. Yeah. Um, and in fact, looking back on that, picking those coral species was probably not a good idea. They weren't quite exciting enough. They're pretty much just sat there. That's what I thought they were. Yeah. They were cool. Yeah. They pulse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they yeah. were cool initially, but they lost interest quick, quickly. So we were thinking some, another animal would probably work better. But it also involved issue investigation. It involved various educa educational teaching uh, protocols. And some of them work well with some groups. Some of them don't work so well with other groups. So, I mean, the idea, like Brian said, is, is to is to figure out what does work and try to integrate that into uh, increasing environmental literacy. Yeah, because it seems like yeah. it'd be really hard to even know which school to pick. Yeah. You know, yeah. where's our first yeah. school? And yeah. there, I mean, why not, do we think that's not the good be one? Like, there's not going to be one solution that you can just plug into the curriculum and it fixes everything. I don't know. We have right. a nationwide yeah. school system. Yeah. Yeah. It seems uh, to think that works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. No, no child left behind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we won't go there. Yeah. Um, 
I'm so but, glad you're not a political guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, leaving children behind. <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> so yes, we the the aquariums were a hook to get the students interested, but what we're really trying to do is try to get the students to understand that there's these large global problems that have local impacts. And so the aquariums were a representation of some animals that are on a coral reef, and the students were like, some of them didn't even know what a coral reef was. Yeah, including some in a school in Florida. Yes. Which was really amazing. Yes. And um, the thing that surprised me the most was this was about ocean literacy trying to get them to be aware what the ocean was what what were the environmental problems facing the ocean and how severe those problems were and generally students knew what an ocean was and they generally knew that okay there's some things wrong with the ocean but they had no idea how severe the problems are right now. It was just mind-boggling to them. Much less the causes or the local actions. Their local actions could make a difference on parts of the ocean thousands of miles away. Yeah. Yeah. And so they didn't know that, hey, we might want to clean up this stream that's running right by our school. Or stop ordering Chilean sea bass when we go to the restaurant. (laughs) Yeah. And um, so we want to find out what works and get the word out on what's working. And ideally, as Eric and I both advance our careers, we can start having some kind of national impact. But um, with no job left behind in place and um, changing a national perspective is very hard. hard. I can't even imagine how you can even pull that off. One step at a time. But I mean, what is the first step? Just knowing the school you want to target, or what? what's step number two then? What we found, one of the more interesting things we found, was that the degree to which the students learned had a high correlation with the involvement of the teacher. Sure. So one of, one of the criteria would be having a teacher that's engaged and interested and gets his, student, his or her students involved. That makes sense. So mm-hmm. that, would, that would be a way to start uh, looking at potential candidates, uh, and we do identify them. Uh, people have come up to both of us and asked about becoming involved in this, and so you know, d- a degree of screening takes place, a degree of practicality takes place. Like we had uh, when I was speaking in South Africa, uh, there was a teacher there. She was very excited about it, but the logistics of us trying to to collaborate in South Africa at this point are just are right. beyond us. So, you know, even, even though her, she seemed like the ideal teacher. The, the, the factors for, with, for us working with her were right. So since since we do have an audience listening to us right now, or well, later, um, <laughs> if there's anybody out there that is a science teacher, either in middle school or high school, mm-hmm. or knows of a good middle school or high school teacher, please get in contact with us because we'd love to, we're always looking for teachers that can be involved in the next project. We'll mm-hmm. give them the website address, the email address. So, uh, the email address is info at reefstewardshipfoundation.org. And the website is just www.reefstewardshipfoundation.org. What are the various animals and corals y'all are working on now? Um, <laughs> next year is going to be really exciting. But um, right now we just have, um, we're, we're doing, we've started up a uh, Bangai breeding project uh, because the animals we're interested in now need to be something that is a conservation priority. We're, we're looking at animals that are 
under some kind of threat. They're and either either under natural or man-induced threats in the field, or are rare, or that have a disproportionate impact on the ecology of coral reefs. What do you yeah. say to those people that, that say that's not true? I mean, like the bang, the bang guys aren't aren't in becoming endangered. Show me the data. <laughs> There's a uh, Alex Vigeli. I'm about ready to. I don't even know if I should mention this. Well, Alex is writing a book on the Bangai cardinal fish, and he's the one who's done most of it. He's done virtually, he and Mark Erdman, who uh, is with Conservation International in Bali, were the ones who have done most of the survey work out in there in the Bangai archipelago. Um, they've done the surveys, they've mapped the range, they've mapped the populations, they've mapped the population size structure. Um, they know every population, they know the genetics, um, they know the collecting data, they know the mortality data. Um, the entire range of this fish is around 30 square miles. That's it. And only uh, above 30 feet. They, they're not found deeper. Um, so, and each population is completely isolated from each other since they, since they don't have dispersal, since they're mouth breeders. So some of those individual islands, then the entire population now consists of three or four fish, which is functionally extinct. Um, whether or not you can create a sustainable fishery is, it's probably possible. Um, my, my, my point is what's the upside of us continuing to collect a, an endemic fish that's highly threatened by not just by the aquarium fish, but by fish bombs and threats from land. Um, what's the upside of us causing or even being a, a component of the cause of the extinction of, of a fish that breeds so readily in captivity? To me, that's just, it's a no-brainer. I and mean, I would think why, that... Why wouldn't you just say, look, look what we did. We <laughs> saved an endemic fish and we are breeding it rather than saying, oh, we fished it to extinction. And especially now with the mortality that you see coming from the wild because they're treated so poorly um, that the fishermen, the, the profit is so low on them that they have to collect by the thousands in order to, to, for it to even uh, make financial sense to do so. So, you know, there's, there's a number of, of problems. that They've been reintroduced in uh, at least three different populations outside their native range um, and done extraordinarily well. The first time I was in the Lundy Strait, I saw, you know, I saw bang guys. I saw bang guys and anemones and bang guys and urchins. Um, and four years later, this year when I went back, I probably counted 10,000 bang guys within 800 meters. I mean, they're everywhere. They're filling every available niche that they could possibly fill. Problem is, they're not where they're supposed to be. And now they are also not limited by these these island populations. They're along the coastline, so technically they could spread. So maybe the bangai won't become extinct because of these introduced populations, but that's an introduced population. That's the wrong way to go about saving a species. So if they're if you're going to go collect wild bangais, my suggestion would be to do it responsibly, do it like the fish actually is worth something, and to start fishing these introduced populations rather than the endemic populations. Uh, get you know sort of like the lionfish, mm-hmm. get them out of the Caribbean, fish away. Uh, that I have no issue with that at all. But to me. It just makes no sense to keep collecting something that we can breed so easily. So there's 10,000 bangais. Why can't they be moved to the Bengai Islands and get things back on track? <laughs> I mean, how far away are we talking about? Is it a boat ride? Is it a it's, airplane ride? It's four hours by air. By air. Yeah, it's it's. So it's 2,000 miles. Uh, no, it's just the way the coastline runs. Oh. Um, and the other the other populations are off the island of Bali, so it's a completely different island. So it's 
you, you, get, you don't know what the genetics are. Um, and this is something we deal with in our work with Secor as well, because uh, we work with the Elkhorn coral, which is now on the endangered species. Right, it is. And we have to think about the gen genetics of that a lot. Right now, the Florida Keys it has so few different genotypes, and they don't self-fertilize. So um, they're almost functionally extinct, even though there are quite a few colonies down there. They're the same, basically the same person, the same colony, yeah. and they can't do anything with each other. So really, they, they need genetic diversity brought in. But by doing that, you're starting to mess with systems that have evolved over long periods of time, and we don't know what the effects of mixing those genotypes are. So under ideal situations, you wouldn't want to ever mix genetics. But we are no longer under ideal conditions. In fact, we're at the breaking point, and we are at the point where we are considering, for example, introducing sperm from one population to enhance the genetics of the, the pauper population. So maybe the same thing, you can make the same argument with the Bangai. Could you take this mixed genetic population from Bali and bring some to restore some of those depauper populations that have been overfished in the Bangai Islands? That's something that could be considered. Um, but really what I think needs to be done, because so few people have actually produced data, and it's pretty much all Alex's data, is for both stakeholders in the aquarium industry, stakeholders in the uh, uh, CTI, the Concert, uh, Coral Triangle Initiative, stakeholders for the exporters in, in Indonesia, um, and fishery scientists to go out there, everybody all together, and go redo those surveys again. So everybody's on the same page, mm -hmm. everybody sees how many are there, and everybody can work together to, to determine what is a, a sustainable take, or if there is a s sustainable take, or whether you say, yeah, go fish Bali, go, go fish Lumi Strait, because this population can't take it anymore. Maybe it can, but um, right now the only data that's available is, is Alex's data, and it's while it's not perfect, it's strong. And, um, I, and the people who are saying that there's not a problem, show me something that they've done, even a single fish survey that they've done to show, show it to be otherwise, I'd be happy to look at it. But, I, but as, far as, I, as far as I know, that doesn't exist. So. so if you could save either one of these species, that coral or mm -hmm. that fish, mm -hmm. that would definitely help get this nonprofit organization on the map? I mean, make it more visible? Is that part well, of the goal, or is that just a <laughs> no, little small snippet? I, because I don't think any one group could do either thing. It's too big of a job. I mean, yeah. uh, like, meant, you guys are just trying to make people aware that these are the problems. Raising awareness and through in, through individual, excuse me, through individual action, um, yeah. and and hopefully that stair steps to other other groups and other people. I mean, it'd be nice. Look, I I don't intentionally raise, raise bang guys, but I've got ninth generation in my tank, um, just because every time they spit, a few make it. I mean, imagine if I actually tried. Imagine if we all had just like one one setup where they were, where we all just were able to fulfill our local communities' needs for Bangai cardinals. That shouldn't be a hard thing to do because they're very hardy fish. Yeah. The ones that aren't hardy are the ones that are coming from the wild and making ours sick. Um, so, yeah. you know, I think I think if you start at the local level and then expand outwards, then that problem can sort of solve itself. Now, the problem with alkaline coral is an entirely different situation because you're talking about a a huge range and massive losses and something that human beings physically can't, we can't rebuild that, um, not in not in generations, but we could ameliorate the environmental threats that they face and possibly create breeding populations so that they could fix themselves. Mm -hmm. That's about, about the best we can hope for. And so I think the idea here is not for 
we have a we have a small board of directors and we have a small group of volunteers we call our advisory council that and we we all work hard on doing work but the idea here is to collaborate with other organizations uh, reef clubs schools depending on what program area we're talking about and trying to get the word out saying this is a problem and we need to start working on addressing this problem Eric and I and the rest of the board and the rest of the advisory council we're not going to be able to fix it we're not going to be able to get our nonprofit's name on the map mm -hmm. by being the ones to fix it. We need to find other people that are concerned about these problems and that have time and are willing to take action to, to start doing things. And what and Project so, Dibs did was it identified an army of people that are able to do something, that being in the aquarium hobby. Mm -hmm. I mean, there yeah. are legions of people out there with skills that are capable of doing amazing things. So there's the army right there. For mm -hmm. education... Same thing. You've got an army of kids coming up all the time who can be the new harbingers of a, of a message. Mm -hmm. um, so what we're trying to do is is facilitate, collaborate, and engage other groups, and possibly bring our professional skills to bear where hobbyists don't have access to scientific literature or scientific background, even though they may be doing the equivalent of science in their tank without even realizing it. Right. We can offer that guidance in that direction. Brian, with his skill in education, can do the same thing in terms of when, for example, a reef club says, I want to put up a tank in somebody's school. Well, that sounds like a nice job, but unless that tank has a purpose for being there and a way to actually be utilized to help create ocean awareness and to help, help those kids, it's just a decoration. Yeah. He's here to give that guidance to those groups, so that's how we're uh, working at this stage of our yeah. Our, of our organization. And it's actually pretty a nice segue into our last program area, which is the research program area, where um, one of the things RSF can help with is to be scientific advisors for various projects or lead the way on some projects where a hobbyist or a teacher might not have the skill set or access to the literature that they need or access to various research chemicals um, that could help start, uh, for example, uh, next year, 2000, uh, 2010, we're starting a new project on... <laughs> we're laughing because no matter what pen Eric Borneman ever touches, it does not work. Right. Does not and work. we need everyone to mail a big pen to Eric Borneman at... <laughs> I'm, I'm having my handwriting analyzed later, and right now all I'm doing is cutting through the paper, and it's going to look like I'm a serial murderer. <laughs> that is a Thank sign you. if your pressure's too yeah. great. <laughs> so your Mickey Mouse pen's not working here? No, it's so. not. Very sad. Or is that I'm Minnie Mouse? I'm for you to talk about. Okay, yes. Um, one of the things we're going to be launching in 2010 is uh, we have uh, two programs are starting up. Uh, one is called a micro grant program, which is anywhere from a hundred to five hundred dollars. Where if we find someone who has time, who has uh, there will obviously be a screening process, but has time, has the equipment, has some kind of uh, skill set that can be used. We're going to be working on doing research on new types of larval food. Um, ranging from everything down from bacteria to um, uh, copepods, uh, phytoplankton, because 
the hobby has ha- has actually made some very good advances in the last 30 years in terms of uh, larval food for a clownfish and and but it's been that. five that's a, it's been that's five a, foods that are that are you've got, you've got, that are now used for raising fish in captivity shrimp you've got mysa shrimp you've got the new t- tigriops which are not tropical and are huge. They're very big. Right. <laughs> uh, their their offspring are are relatively okay. We've got rotifers and we've got phytoplankton. Yeah. That's five foods. Of those, none of them are found on tropical coral reefs. Well, not yeah. the phyto we have, right? No, yeah. right. there's like right. different versions of phytoplankton. Absolutely, absolutely. And we had a presentation last year in our club where they talked about. Well, they actually had like these NOAA maps. Yeah. And they showed how phytoplankton used to be and then how phytoplankton is today. Uh-huh. And there was very little left. In the ocean, at least if the maps are correct, and I'm yeah, reading it right. Yeah, it, it, things have changed a lot. Yes, that that part is true. But basically, the foods we are using, we've gotten by with. And let's face it, there's an awful lot of larval stages that have an awful lot of very specific needs. And tiny and mouths. And tiny, tiny, various sizes of tiny mouths. Yeah. And we're trying to fulfill it all with five basic foods that from temperate, uh, from and, temperate and fresh and water Arctic. and Arctic waters. Yeah. I mean, the fact that we're not having success breeding is is not surprising. Right. The fact that we've done as well as we have is more testimony to the dedication of and skills of, of hobbyists. So if you yeah. start to look at what a lot of the base, basal food elements of marine, tropical marine food chains are, they're not what we're using. And I think most people involved in breeding know that the, the thing we're lacking are foods. Yeah. And I think most of us know it's copepods. And and we know that copepods can have very long, lar- very long and complex larval stages. Um, but we don't know a lot about a lot of them. Some of them might be very simple. For example, our Acropora copepods. <laughs> they're direct- He's learning, Drew. He's learning. <laughs> they're, they're, they are direct developers. Yeah. I mean, how, wouldn't it be nice to find a copepod the right size that's a direct developer that could be used as a larval feed? Oh, you're talking about the red bugs? Yeah. You're talking about those yeah. being bad? Copepods well, that could be good to some fish. What I'm saying is there could be other copepods out there that don't go through 21 larval phases and yeah. a 50-day larval cycle before it becomes an adult. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. we just don't know enough about them. And identifying some of those, I think, are going to be key. And the thing, one of the other species that we're going to be looking at very closely, actually, too, Prochlorococcus and Senecococcus, which are both. Um, Man, is this a family know. show? What did you say? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm actually I'm glad I got the Prochloro one out there because that's a tongue tie. Yeah, I'm glad um, Eric handled that one. Um, I just but, need to kill all the mandarins. You have all the copepods you need. <laughs> <laughs> but these are um, these are less than a micron. They're like 0.2 to 0.7 micron cyanobacterial um, algal cells, and they are found at the highest density of coral reefs. They're found in nutrient-poor areas. They're really they're they're found at densities higher than almost anything else. And this is probably one of the main first sources of food. I have a feeling that if not consumed directly by the larvae, that it does provide for, say, copepods. Okay, so wait. Early copepods. You said the size. Yeah. Point two, two microns. Seven microns. To feed cyanobacteria? No, these are they're, they're, the size of cyanobacteria. We're gonna have to backtrack here just to make it. When we say algae, we think of all sorts of things, right? Mm-hmm. We think of things like kelp, and we think of things like phytoplankton, mm-hmm. and we think of things like zooxanthellae. Zooxanthellae are actually dinoflagellates. They're typically they're protists. They just happen to photosynthesize, so they're really not an algae. But even scientists call them algae. Yeah. This these two. Cyanobacteria 
we think of cyanobacteria as filamentous gnats and globs right. and goog. There's an article that's going to come out on this uh, same website about that about very topic. Good. Okay. So cyanobacteria are a very broad group. They're found in freshwater. They're found in deserts. They're found in polar ice caps. Right. And these happen to be single-celled, small, and they are pelagic. They are not benthic. So these are... What's the difference? Benthic is on the surface, on the bottom, on any sand, hard substrate or whatever. Pelagic, it means always living in the ocean. So this is true... It's moving around. It, always. Okay. And, and it doesn't form filaments or anything. These are single cells, tiny right. little single cells, and they're abundant in tropical nutrient-poor water. So this is likely a, for either a direct food source for developing plankton or food for the, their food. So um, we are going to... And there, there are culturing protocols for it. It has been done... It's never been introduced into breeding efforts in for marine ornamentals. So that's going to be one of our projects for this upcoming yeah. year is um, the culture prochlor. <laughs> <laughs> this is the problem, prochlorococcus. And um, it may be that, that these are also really important foods for a lot of the azocephalic species that we are not able to keep alive. So that would be a really nice you know, bonus if it turns out that... And you're talking about the filtrating non-photosynthetic corals? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You gotta talk like a hobbyist sometimes, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's that's where we're hoping we can find you know the RSF will work on establishing the initial culture and then the micro grant program is a way to get the culture out to other yeah. hobbyists that are interested in starting to work on larval foods. Mm-hmm. And yeah. once we get them established in multiple places, they're they're we're not at risk of of losing a population from one crashing city and right. crashing the culture. Yeah. Um, and so that's the micro grant program is to just get people started on. And, and it's not necessarily just with that. It's with, no, okay, no. If, if, if someone comes to us with a good idea, say, I think I could breed this fish or I could breed this invertebrate. If only I could do this and it wouldn't take me a lot, but I, I don't have it. We would, if, if they have the dedication, they can submit a short proposal for a small amount of money. We would be micro granting out small amounts of money for dedicated people to accomplish this, those right. goals. Sounds good. And so that, that's our first program. That's kind of the first step, is because we need to be able to establish that we can do something. And that's what the micro grant program is for. And then uh, starting next year, but probably not heavily until uh, 2011. Um, is we're actually going to have a larger grant program because that we with being a 501c3 we do have access to grant programs and other sources of funding that hobbyists as individuals would not have and if we've demonstrated we can do something in terms of aquaculture then we can apply for grants to start scaling things up to be collaborative we, with the applicants so somebody comes to us and says we want to ramp up production of the species we're breeding let's just say for example it's Mandarin fish. Perfect. And and yeah. they want to they realize there's a problem with collecting mandarin fish and the mortality or whatever mm-hmm. and they want to develop a facility for it and that it's going to help the oceans if we feel like like we've identified a funding program for it and that it's applicable, then we will they can't write the grant, we can write the grant, it would be a collaborative effort, and then we can apply for things like tens of thousands of dollars or mm-hmm. twenties of thousands, depending on what the program is, to get them started and get them working. So those are the those are the two programs and and the reason this is so urgent is that coral reefs are declining very rapidly in the wild and we need to find a way to make this hobby as self-sustaining as Rapid. possible. I do have a question though. 
Um, with the educational part in the school system, obviously you're not wanting to take over the entire semester. Are you hoping for like three weeks of information, two weeks? Now, what's the is, is there some kind of visual you have at least in your own mind that you're hoping will become true one day? Um, well, no, you you have to just with the way the school structure is, you do have to um, minimize the. I mean, you only have a small amount of time that you can get access to the students because yeah. they have curriculum that they have to cover. Um, most of our programs are initially going to be in environmental science and marine science classrooms because those are not. Uh, closely tied to the standards, so they have more freedom in how they can alter their schedule. That's an elective and class, then, right? It's, it's generally an elective class. All right. Uh, most states. Um, and when we're doing our actual research studies, we'll be taking more time uh, to develop the materials. And so the research studies is is it depends on how much time the teacher really has. I mean. Can they give us one day a week for six weeks, or can they give us one day a week for 18 weeks, a whole semester? Oh. And so we're flexible with that, um, but we need to do the research to figure out what's working. And then once we have something that's working, then that could be plugged in not only into the elective classes, but hopefully into some of the other core classes, but it would be a much shorter period of time because we'll have figured out what works for most students. Right. And so that's where we want to develop curriculum materials that can be then put into the classroom that have environmental literacy built into them. Because mm -hmm. a lot of the science classes right now, uh, they generally look at pure science. That There's very little mention of what's actually going on in the real world out there. Yeah. Well, I have the same complaint about everything else in the school system that it doesn't teach you any of the things you're actually going to use in the real world, whether just fixing an outlet in your house, knowing how electricity mm -hmm. works, knowing to not oh, test with your shoes off like we <laughs> talked about at lunch. Right. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, wearing rubber-soled shoes, and you can actually feed your tank safely, apparently. There, pal. But, um, you know, the, the thing is, is that general plumbing, kids don't know it. You know, automotive, they didn't teach that in my school either. They taught how to hammer out a dent in the car because everyone gets in car wrecks. I thought that was kind of practical, but I still took woodwork and plastics. I didn't even have that offered. Yeah. Yeah, we, we didn't even have the shop. Well, you said it was an elective class. Mm -hmm. Does that mean the students can choose it? And how much interest is generated? I mean, from, you know, obviously they, if they can elect to take that or something else. Well, one, one of the very sad statistics about the U.S. is that only 3% of high school kids even have the option of taking an environmental science class and so but generally when they are offered they're very competitive classes to get into there's there's an underlying need there interest from the students to at least enroll in the class and get in and try to figure out uh, what's going on um, but yes it's it's generally an elective in high school anyway it's generally an elective class um, and so they can choose from environmental science marine science uh, astrophysics I mean there, there's a lot of other sciences that are available depending on the school system in the state mm -hmm. um, well it's, are, are, do you, are you gonna break the big news um, we'll save that for next okay I'll try to build a little little run a commercial for marine people live for 30 seconds <laughs> <laughs> so what's going no. on here <laughs> um, <laughs> whose show is this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
no, no. Um, I thought since we were just talking about foods, it might be a good time for you to talk about our uh, brooding coral effort. Mm. Uh, I think that's did, did more important. Did you about you were talking about the saltwater foods? And there's somewhere that's got them, but you just can't get them imported yet, or uh, something to that effect. Yeah, there there are actually a couple of uh, sources of cultured material, and you can access them by basically like a, a sequence bank number of thousands of different foods, mostly algae, but there are some that also have um, planktonic like mm-hmm. life forms, um, and they are available. They're not. They're not cheap. They're about fifty dollars a culture. So you know, and generally there's a minimum order of five. So you have to have enough resources and money at your dis- dispense to 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 run five cultures of fairly expensive culture. But once it's once it's going, shouldn't be a big deal. But you have to have that initial initial commitment. But there's a lot of stuff available out there, and that's why it's so disappointing to see you know nanochloropsis showing up in every bottle there is. It's because it's easy to grow, yeah. and that, and that's about the end of it. It's not that it's superior or anything yeah. else. And just one of these websites, which uh, we'll have to put in the show notes, um, has 1,400 species of phytoplankton that's culturable. And and totally is the name of the website? T- the, the It'll Ross, be in the show notes. It's the Roscoff collection. Okay. Uh, they're based in France, um, and they even they even have the location where it was collected, so you know whether you're getting tropical. And even within tropical, you can know whether it's Indian Ocean or Fijian, or it's crazy. Um, so there's a lot of resources out there that I mean, a lot of people who are involved in breeding and should have. who knows how many of these 1400 cultures are easy to culture yeah, yeah. and yeah. wouldn't it be nice to have a tropical algae that's easy to culture yeah that'd be crazy yeah. <laughs> I don't know. One, one of the things about 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 breeding in the hobby though is everybody wants to get to the end stage immediately right you start off with with the the fish you want to breed mm-hmm. and you sort of throw everything in the kitchen sink at it trying to hope something sticks yeah. and ultimately that causes rather slow development of, of you know being able to do new species rather than starting from the bottom up it's not like a bird <laughs> exactly <laughs> i mean so it kind of, to us it sort of makes sense to, to start establishing those those first foods that are the the, the sticking points for so many yeah. and if we can get some of these first foods that are widely accepted then we should be able to breed lots and lots of things yeah that's been what i picked up because i'm not a breeder myself the problem I, is I, I focus on my tank, yeah. and I'm not really yeah. thinking about more little fish in my house. Right, but right. I do pick up from these presentations. It's always a matter of getting food that matches the size of the mouth of mm-hmm. the the critter that you're trying yeah. to yeah, yeah. bring up from larval yeah. stages to larger size. It's widely known, and yet you know, if you, if you tell somebody, well, I'm breeding phytoplankton, I'm breeding algae. Not the sexiest thing in the world to do. Right. Um, you want to breed the clownfish. You want to breed the filefish. You want to breed the mandarin fish. That's the cool end result. But without doing the legwork, you know, <laughs> we're not going to get a lot of those big successes. They're going to come sporadically as they have for the past 30 years. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, hopefully we can get people excited in not just keeping rotifer cultures going or phytoplankton cultures going, but some of these different ones that we're going to be trying to start initiatives on. And so, we'll have to learn their whole name now because we've got to learn phytoplankton. I know, I know. <laughs> well, and the other, and the other thing that, that I'm very interested in, especially through my work with Seacor, is starting to close the life cycle on, on corals and uh, using sexual, sexual reproduction to produce corals. And I got my first taste of this using Postolopera damacornis. <laughs> Everyone's like, what? Pacillopora <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Um, Why do you say the second half correct and the first half over? <laughs> I don't get that. <laughs> so, um, you know, I just, I had a, a tank with a brood sack of about 30 fist size colonies. They're probably a year to three years old, which is about when brooders mature. And um, I noticed that they were settling all over. And I, most people have noticed settling of the squirrel, but I, I was more interested in seeing just how much could be produced and just how fast they grew. And what I found was that within three months, I had 500 colonies of postal opera, and within six months, they were all way bigger than the frags people are selling. They were little bitty colonies about yeah. the size of a golf ball. Mm-hmm. And and if you look at uh, Dirk's work with Agaricia and with uh, Fabio Fregum, he's getting 4,000 to 5,000 planula a month. And planula is planula the... is the swimming stage of the coral, but these, because they're brooders, they come with their own little stock culture, parent culture of zezanthelli, so they're ready to settle and start to grow immediately. No larval phases, no yeah. waiting. They just go onto a rock, plop down. <clears throat> Twenty-four hours later, their cows finally have got tentacles, and you can feed them Artemian nuclei. And so, if you know, that's tiny during brine the brine. Brine. yeah, yeah, <laughs> some people just have yeah, to be sorry, sorry. <laughs> maybe brine shrimp. So. So at that stage, they're a single polyp, and then they start to divide. They've already got their algae. They're, they're really successful. And if you know when in the month that you get that peak of larvae, larvae being released, you can get, you know, just throw your coral in a collector for a few days out of the month. You come out with 5,000 larvae, of which you get 80% settlement. Yeah. I mean, you basically conquered that coral really, really fast. Now, the problem is most corals aren't breeders, but there are a lot of them. So that's one of the things that I've been working on for the past few months, um, and that is accumulating a list of all the different brooding coral species, all the ones that we have, especially the ones we have report where people have seen uh, brooded larvae within the coral. They haven't actually had them settled, but we know they're doing it in yeah. the tanks. And then coming up with breeding plans for them. As to, this is what it takes to get these. Obviously, it doesn't take much with Damocornis. No. With some of the other ones, it may take a little bit more work, but once you get those larvae to spit, you're going to have a lot of corals. And what's happening now is we're having a lot of reproduction in our tanks, but if a, if a polyp spits out four planula, the chances are very good that those are being eaten by the coral next to it within about two and a half seconds or, or like by something else. Fish the, or a hundred fish. Or the skimmer. So, or the skimmer. And so we do have a lot of brooders, and a lot of them are very you know, sought-after corals. It's just going to be like rearing fish. You just have to know when they're planulating, and get those planula out of your reef tank into a settling tank for a period of time, and you're going to have more corals than you could frag in a, a thousand years very quickly. Well, the benefit and of you doing this and getting this happen start, is if the corals are pretty corals. I was, was going to bring this up because <laughs> by doing this, you're talking about you can start to do genetic crosses. Oh. So then you can expect different phenotypes. So you can make so your own rainbow You could to potentially make your <laughs> own rainbow bacillopore. L-E. Milev. Milev. Literally good. Milev Tyree bacillopore. And because because some corals are not, some sperm, can they're not as specific. Like, they can fertilize several types of eggs. So you might be able to make some pretty interesting little critters. That would be a strange um, staghorn For example, wouldn't you like to see a, a yellow and purple euphilia? Sure. Might be possible. Didn't you say might be somebody's doing anemones too? Somebody's yeah. Anemone no, well, the thing it? about it, um, this is a weird one, and it's not fully understood, but the, the bald tip anemone, um, for in most cases, is a single-sex broadcast monarch. It's either a male putting out sperm or a female putting out eggs. However, 
it is also able to produce brooded planula. And Dominic Bartolomé in Brest, France was the first to notice this. He has some beautiful shots of a, of a, of a little intact male larvae, and it even has bulb tips on the, on the larvae. It's like a five-pointed oh. stars with bulbs. And he said that they released, he looked at them, he got photos of them, and then they disappeared into his tank, and he thought he wouldn't see them anymore. But they settled on the underside of live rock. They like a real cryptic space where they stay until they grow big enough that they can come out and certainly and, and feed. And then they still stay in nooks and cracks of the rock until they can actually host a clownfish and not get beaten up. Yeah. And just recently, Anthony Calfo also had a big bunch of brooded larvae from a bulb tip anemone that he brought some to the last Magna and was selling at the Mobile oh. booth. So occasionally, and we don't know under what conditions or why or when, but occasionally that is a brooding uh, anemone, and also Epicystis for the flower anemone. That one's viviparous, so it doesn't even have a larval phase. It just spits out little baby adults. Really? Yeah. yeah. So Like a triple. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah. no, no work involved, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways we can employ sexual reproduction in the hobby mm -hmm. and get lots and lots of animals without sitting there and fragging something, gluing it, waiting for it to grow, yeah. fragging, you know. And then we maintain genetic diversity, and then we become self-sufficient just like the freshwater hobby. And that's one of, one of the goals. And working with broadcast spawning species is always going to be hard because we have to get to the point where these things are reproducing regularly like they do in nature. Yeah. Getting to that stage and the, and the amount of work and collecting and then fertilizing, it's a lot of work. And we're doing it with Secor, but it's not going to be hobby-friendly. The brooders, however, are, are going to be really hobby-friendly. So I'm, I'm going to have a list and protocols and um, all the relevant publications up on the RSF website within the next few months. And it's just a really important first step because even brooders, even though they're much, much easier than broadcast spawners, you do need to get, you know, in some cases you can just work with one colony, but it's much better to work with multiple mm -hmm. colonies. So just getting that list out there of, okay, these are brooding corals that we want to start working with on our micro grant program, our larger grant program. People need to start keeping Two, three, yeah, four colonies some, of this particular yeah, coral. Some brooders have male polyps and female polyps, and they can self-fertilize, but a lot can't. Some of them, they, they have to fertilize each other. So you've got a, a polyp that has both spermaries and ovaries, but they can't self-fertilize. They're going to need one nearby, so that one will release a little sperm. It'll swim to the next colony, brood that egg in, it, in that one's polyp, and it'll start to spit at a certain time in the month, and that's mm -hmm. when you need to collect them and grow them. And so that, that takes time, so the list is the first step. Yeah. And then in a year to three years, which is when most of them mature, then we can start really looking at having an impact in terms of number of corals grown. Yeah. And, and um, what people learn from doing that will be a very good next step for when we attempt to work <laughs> broadcast with broadcast spawners, which are a lot harder. And, and um, but, you know, we're looking well, at baby steps and, here. And so also, you, I you mean, look at brooders you, you as the first this, baby step. You look at this in terms of the hobby as well. I mean, this is the hobby actually taking efforts to become self-sustaining. Yeah. I mean, forget about the collection of the wild. We're sitting here actually working on breeding animals and, and doing it ourselves. I think that's a really nice goal to reach. Well, freshwater people have been doing it for a while. They sure but their have. fish are so stupidly boring. I know. <laughs> I don't even care. No, well, I know. And the good thing about saltwater is people want to be able to breed their own goals. They want to be able to create their own. They want the baby. I mean, at least you have a hobby where people want these things. Right. You know, they they right. all want to be self-sustaining. Right. Where, yeah. they, you know, I think they'd be perfectly happy saying, okay, 
The only thing we have to collect now is five types of fish from the wild until we figure those out. Yeah, or, or, or if we've got most most of the supply that you bring in occasional new genetic material, and the oceans would be able to handle that without yeah. a problem. And I, I don't think that, I mean, there are some people who think that the aquarium trade is having huge impacts on ocean populations, and there's not much evidence for that. Um, there are some species of concern. There are areas where there are, we have definitely seen major decreases in populations, but in general, the aquarium trade is relatively low volume, relatively high value, um, and we and there's almost no data to show anything. That said, uh, reefs are under a lot of different threats. They're dying of death of a thousand cuts, and we are one of those cuts. We, are, we may not be the, the gas, we, not, we, not, we may not be the one that kills it all off, but we clean up our own backyard, and that's the way I feel about it. I mean, you know, in whatever way we can directly help it, 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 it's better for everybody. It's better for the hobby. It's better for everybody. Any good news yeah. lately? <laughs> yeah, there there has been a little bit of good news just about a week ago. Yes, um, and within our within our research program, um, we've been uh, working on multiple projects and multiple multiple grant proposals, and uh, we just recently uh, submitted a grant proposal to the Ocean Foundation, which is a, a very large. Uh, nonprofit that funds other nonprofits. They're a funding and broker. Funding broker. Yeah. <laughs> I like the sound of that. <laughs> and um, they just accepted our grant proposal. Uh, so we now have uh, it was a nineteen thousand five hundred dollar grant proposal that was ah. accepted um, for a research program we're going to be doing. Um, Which will be announced soon. Will be announced very soon. Uh, we're working on the press release now, um, but we have to get a few more details. Uh, put together. And it'll be on the front um, page of your site, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. It will be. Mm-hmm. And you know, let reef addicts know we'll put it on the front page Absolutely. of our site. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so we're real pleased. I mean, that's that's probably one of the larger grants given to. Um, something that started off as basically a hobby organization. Well, if you guys want to send me money, I'll grow Fido. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I got from all this. You know, 50 yeah. bucks, Fido, sure, I can do it. I mean, it's all about getting free stuff, right? No. Yeah. It really isn't, but I know what you're saying. Yeah. 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 So we were really excited about that. That was a, that was a pretty big accomplishment for, for a young organization. So. Yeah, that's good news. Yeah. What do you think, Drew? Do you want to breathe something and get some money from this crew? Oh, I've, I've got numerous things in my <laughs> tank. I've got red serpent stars in my tanks that my wife had uh, bred in the past, and that's what I'd like to breed is to see. Because you hardly ever see red serpent stars in the hobby anymore. And I've over the last few years, I've collected four of them from either various people that have had them in their aquariums for years or finding them luckily at fish stores, and I've brought those in. So there's, I have four now. Hopefully I have males and females. And hopefully I can get Excellent. a breeding. Yes, it's it, it's actually a very good point you bring up. Hopefully you have males and females. One of the reasons we want to do the coral breeding project is so that we start to identify who has males and who has females uh-huh. and what. And then fragging comes in here because then we can get frags of those corals right. sent to new people. So you don't have to wait for one to three years to figure out if you've got males right. or females right or wait and for the so store to bring one in and you buy it and you find out it's another male and and you know one of the things that i've been fairly proud of is is my samakura uh <laughs> has spawned three years in a row on the same you saw it happen lunar yeah lunar phase synced in february and i was like february that's weird but then I, it occurred to me in southern hemisphere it's yeah. the it's the warmest month mm-hmm. and um i took notes the first time it happened and then the second year i Wrote it down again. I said, you know, it's about, about it was about this time. And I checked, 
And then I looked at the lunar phase, and it was the same number of days after the full moon. And I was like, wow, wow that's really cool. Then it happened a third year in a row. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, so I have a synchronous broadcast spawning coral in my tank now. And yeah. that, I think that's just really cool. The so you ready for February of next year? That's it. <laughs> it, it. It should be it. The problem, I have boys. No. All I got is boys. No chicks. I know. I need girls. It's a so so it's absolutely useless. <laughs> yeah. The worst part is, is that I've had a semicore now for six, seven years. And I have lost all but like a one inch piece of it. it just, oh, I got it. It's been dwindling away. And I'm thinking it's probably the only girl left on the planet. And you should have had it. <laughs> I will take her off your hands. Really? Because she's in the cross section. Because I got a bunch of boys that know what to do with her. They're <laughs> <laughs> so smart. Now. I had a spawning event. They, I'll look and see when it was. Because my old tank went cloudy one uh-huh. night. Yeah, and mark, my prop tank's white. Mark it down. And, and, and I, I, I have pictures of the, around the time it happened. So I can look back and yeah. see what day yeah, it yeah. was. And I'll, I'll get in touch yeah, I think that's. I also had a sponge spawning, which was kind of cold. That happened during the day. Wow. Uh, sponges tend to spawn during the day. That is another good point, though, that, that Drew brings up is that uh, we have our forums and we have lots of forums set up for uh, breeding reports of yeah. different species because we just want to know what hobbyists are uh, having breeding events. Yeah, and, like the guys from Lone Star, they're like, oh. You know, they, they have this soft coral that we got some of that's a surface brooder and is going to be a good candidate for propagation to learn more about surface brooding. It's not, that's new to science. Mm-hmm. Nope. That coral does not even have a genus name mm-hmm. and much less known that it was, that it was a surface brooder. It's like but a zinnia, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, the little daisy the snowflake, thing? The little snowflake yeah. things, right. And I'm sending, I'm sending samples to uh, Kathy McFadden and she's going to determine what it is, it might be an all new species. I'm so glad you got right. that. I came yeah. for me originally from Zoanet. Exactly. It exactly. was in on one of their corals. Yeah. And I That's got it. I thought it was pretty. And yeah. it's kind of funny because the main colony kind of just withered away. I was like, well, at least I got these things left over. And the neat thing about them is they come off so easy. Right. I mean, yeah. if you if they get in your zoanthids and they just kind of take up space and the, the zoos mm-hmm. are closing, you can shake the zoanthids and they fall right off. Oh, they don't God. glue on, they <laughs> fall off. They're <laughs> so easy. And, and I gave some problems. to James, and yeah. James gave some to you. But in the process, and I heard you got all excited. Well, I did. But moreover, just in passing, he said, "Oh yeah, we've had like four or five things spawn here." Mm. I was like, oh. "And you could see." I want to know. You know, this is really important, yeah. and and we hear this going around and speaking around the country and from yeah. different clubs. People are like, "Oh yeah, that spawns all the time." It's like. The world needs to know. The hobby needs to know. Yeah. We need a repository a of information. And so the, the first step is our forums. We want yeah. people to report it on our forums so that we have a record of it. And then the next step is uh, a publication. We gave a few of them to uh, your president mm-hmm. up in Dallas when we came up and spoke is the Reef Stewardship Review. Which yeah, is, you know what Matt did? He said anyone that joins Reef Stewardship Foundation would get a book. Because yeah. they felt that was the best way to handle it. Because nice. why just award the book to anyone? Why not get someone that actually motivation. became a member and right. wanted to right. pursue? That's nice. And you said like the first two people that join, and you would let him <coughs> know those two will get the book. That's great. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And um, the Reef Stewardship Review is going to be our publication, and uh, we have multiple. We're going to be talking about our school projects, all three of our program areas: aquaculture, school, and research. But one of the things we're going to be doing is we're going to be gathering all this information from our forums and the reports that we get and saying, hey, this is happening in the hobby and this is what we need to uh, be and focusing hope, on and, and getting more people doing. And as we develop them, it'll have protocols as well. Yes. For, mm-hmm. So it'll be public distribution protocols for rearing various species. Yeah. yeah. So you don't have to 
take the 20 various ways that people have come up to do it, we'll have come up with one protocol that works that then people can follow so they don't have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, because that happens a lot. That happens all too often. Okay, so let's wrap this up. Thank you very much for being on Reef Addicts. We appreciate it. I think the content was very interesting, and we should definitely see some traffic heading towards your site after this. Um, I think that the whole idea of keeping track of when spawning events are occurring wherever they're happening, some kind of great spreadsheet, I guess, like a salt study was once done. And (laughs) and having that kind of information. I mean, I've seen bristle worms spawn. I've seen clams spawn. And and we hear about it all the time, but if that information gets centralized, we'll be able to start identifying trends all together and say, okay, this is how we do it. Yeah. And, but as long as it's just being reported once or people don't tell anybody about it or, or think they it means something, or they missed it, yeah, yeah. Then, then it doesn't do a lot of good. And I think we have room to make a lot of progress really fast. And, yeah, and we need it, you know, especially reported on our forums because we will get people that occasionally send us a link. Hey, this happened here. It's like, well, we'd really like to have it posted here because you never know if that website is going to go away, whereas... We, we are around a while. C3. We're not. We're not going, we're not going anywhere. anywhere. Yeah. yeah. And, and we yeah. need to be able to keep it in a permanent spot. That sounds All right, so let's talk about what's coming up with Max. Max is the Marine Aquarium Expo that takes place in April. April 10th and 11th in Orange County Fairgrounds. There you go. And so because of that, what is Reef Addicts doing? What, do, what are we working on right now? Well, I just made the most awesome postcard ever for the uh, swag bags. <clears throat> There's going to be 1,500 bags given away at the door, and... Um, I made a really cool looking postcard with a uh, sticker that gets stuck on it that you're going to be handling. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I'm really excited that you're doing that kind of design work because you're really good at it. And, you know, the cool thing about the Internet is that you're able to show me instantly what you made. I mean, you just email me a file right through Skype. (laughs) Boom, I had it. I had it on my screen. We could discuss any tiny uh, tweaks that might have been needed. And then we discuss the game plan of how I get to prepare these 1,500 postcards myself <laughs> before they get shipped over to California for Kevin to have them put into the swag bags. Exactly, which you're going to have to I'm do excited. probably. Well, I think it's the California people are going to go crazy when they get our postcard. <laughs> <laughs> They're lucky because I think that everybody else in the rest of the United States that doesn't come is going to want them because... Uh, we're only printing out 1,500, and that's all that's required for the swag bags. Because um, right. the sticker is basically, it's a, uh, a Reef Addicts logo with a waterline marking to basically remind you where you need to fill up your sump to or let somebody know who's watching your tank where the fill line is to. And so it's it's quite a useful little tchotchke, if you, you, know, if you ask me. And so the only people it's that are... It's brilliant. I don't know who came up with it, but I love the idea. <laughs> I wonder who came up <laughs> with it, Mark. Really? I think it's going to be awesome. I can't wait to see pictures of it on people's sumps. Yeah, that's the one thing that I'm kind of excited about, because we're giving out 1,500 of them, and I really hope that uh, Californians and the visitors that come to Max really show out and start posting their pictures of their sumps with their Reef Addicts tag on them. 
It's either that or they paste it on the side of their car and show this is how far to fill the car up with water. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I think the uh, the sticker actually says something like um, top off to this line, or if you see if you see it low, top off to this line or something. So I think the people are actually yeah. going to start putting them on their foreheads because it doesn't necessarily say water <laughs> top off line. I think they're just going to start drinking and stab it on their foreheads. <laughs> Ooh, you could put on the side of your glass for Crown Royal refills. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's a good idea. Beer bottles? I mean, oh, there's so many reasons to... This is greatness. <laughs> and you know what? I wonder who's the marketing genius that came up with that. <laughs> Brilliance! I just love it. Okay, so let me ask you this. Are we going to let anyone see this, or are they just going to have to wait till April? I mean, are you going to do a preview on the site? Hmm. Because, you know, everyone's going to say, we want to see it. Yeah, I guess they are going to want to see it. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe if they Maybe we'll charge it. them a dollar each to look at it. <laughs> Maybe if people start using avatars on Reef Addicts so I don't have to start seeing you know, all these empty blue or gray-headed squares in my posts that I'm looking at. Maybe we'll, then, uh, we'll give them a preview of the sticker. <laughs> I saw a few avatars this evening when I checked the site. Well, you know. Okay, so that's cool. We got that coming up. And at the MAX conference, we're actually going to have a booth. And as we get closer to the event, we'll explain to you what's going to happen in the booth. But we are excited to be a participant in it. And, of course, we love seeing um, Mark the excitement, the, the buzz, the fact that it's even happening at all. And so we've got their banner on the front of our site to let people know about it. Two words. Booth babes. <laughs> booth babes. Yes, I like that. That's what's happening at Reef Addicts they can't be. They can't be men, though. they got to be women. Come on. <laughs> you think I don't have the inside line okay. on all the reef chicks? Well, yeah, silly me. What was I thinking? You do live in California. You've got a huge advantage right there. I wish they Jesse, let's change topics. Why don't you tell us all about the new contest that's happening on Reef Addicts? Alright. Well, I'm pretty happy about it because I'm stoked when we get stuff to give away to people. Um, Digital Aquatics is sponsoring this contest, which we're really happy about. Thank you, Digital Aquatics. We love you. But um, they are giving us a Reefkeeper Elite Net uh, controller to give away for our blog contest. And if you don't... That sounds really complicated and difficult. Is anyone going to want this not, thing? It's not... What? The controller or the contest? Because both of them are super... Yeah, it, so, it sounds... No, the controller sounds so complicated. Can't I just stick it on the side of my tank and turn it on? <laughs> yes, basically. <laughs> no, it's awesome. I, I always wanted a controller because I was away from my tank a lot. And um, I basically... Because it was a half an hour away from my house when I had it. Um, but no, it's awesome because you can basically monitor your tank from far away and you can get online and check your stats and it re gives you reports and tells you what's going on with it. It's, it's an awesome little deal and they have really cool, um, I don't know what, what you'd call it, like the control panel that has, I guess, multiple colors and things you can do with it. It's really styling now, but no, it's not, it's not complicated. Nice. It's not complicated and they have a good customer service too, so. I was just playing the devil's advocate. Are. That's I all know. I was doing. Okay, so it's actually a very simple 
but wonderful device. Yes. And one person is going to win this. One person is going to win it. Instead of having to pay. One winner is going to win this, but they're not going to have to pay $500 like the rest of us. No. All they... See, it's an expensive controller. This is a heck of a prize. Yeah, it's and it's the best one. They have like other options that are like not including the net capability and everything, but they give us the top of the line for this contest. Right. So we've really got to... Uh, yeah, no, this is amazing. This is a fantastic exactly. prize. It's awesome. So, I mean, here's some of the stuff right off the list. Obviously, you get the main head unit, the part that communicates. Then you've got a control module. Actually, it's two modules that control up to eight outlets. It's going to accept pH, ORP, temperature, and there's two extra switch ports. It has the net feature, so you're connected to the web, temperature probe, the pH probe, all these things are included right out of the box. So one person's going to be able to just have a blast as soon as they get their yeah, new toy. I'm really jealous. But how do they get it? What's what? Tell us the bad part. Now what's, there what's is the no bad, bad news. news. It's Because, you know, they just want to put their name in a bucket. They want to win. They don't well, want to do anything. Know, honestly, it's super easy. It's <laughs> as easy as what they do basically every day on every other forum or whatever they do. They write down a stupid thread talking about something. But the only thing that we're asking is... When you make a blog on Refetix, create something that is going to be useful to the community because obviously we're trying to create a database here of information, a resource for people to come by and read. And whether that resource be, um, you know, how you built your tank or your tank build type of blog, um, or maybe it's a DIY type of home thing that you've created, or we just had somebody make an article about making uh, homemade fish food. All these things are great blog entries, and basically all we're asking you to do is sign up, create your own blog entry, take some time, think about it, add some pictures to it, make it interesting, because it's not only um, us who are choosing the winners, because we're going to dwindle it down from everybody who has submitted from day one, every blog of the website since day one until February 10th. So basically all blogs from day one till February 10th are going to be um, submitted. There's nothing extra that you have to do to make sure that we get um, attention to it. And the Reef Addicts committed ones. <laughs> <laughs> I like how that's so hard for you to say. <laughs> I hate that name. Anyway, um, we're going to sit down and pick top ten top 10 that we feel are most you know uh, valuable or give the most to the community and we'll put those up for a poll and then America gets to choose who is going to be the winner of those top 10 that's right all the registered members of Reef Addicts will have the opportunity to vote and pick the best of the the best of the best the cream of the crop so here's some specifics though because you know, Jesse talked about some of the, you know, you're talking about some of the different topics. You might want to talk about electricity. You might want to talk about feeding. You might want to talk about propagation. That's fine. But the bottom line is the blog has to stand on its own merits. So we're actually holding you guys accountable. We're looking at 500 words, which is basically A five minimum paragraphs. of a 500 words. We're looking at spelling. We're looking at punctuation. We're looking at grammar, okay? We're not looking for text speak. It shouldn't be something you have to decode with a magic ring. We want it to be clear and understandable and help others be successful hobbyists as well. So, yes, does this sound like a lot of work? No, it, not at all. If I told you, okay, if you'll take the time to sit down and do all this 
and I will hand you five $100 bills. You'd probably do it. <laughs> well, here's the opportunity for you to win a $500 controller, and all you got to do is create an awesome blog entry. Yeah. I think that, and the nice thing is you can enter as many blog entries as you want. There's not a limit. You can enter all you want. All your friends, they can enter. We want to, we'd like to see all kinds of communication happening between each other, of course, because Reef Addicts is designed as a community for people to talk to one another. Another important point is um, start starting to rate blogs that you see on the on the forums because that helps us decide as well who's going to be the winner. If you rate it four stars, three stars, five stars, you know that weighs heavily on our consciences. Yeah, that could help. And also, we need you to categorize your blog. Whenever you're creating your your entry, you'll notice at the bottom under the editor, there's a whole bunch of subcategories whether it's feeding or electrical or a tank entry or a tank summation where you're talking about your whole system, that's fine. Just put them in categories because when people are trying to find more information, they're clicking on the entire category to see all the entries pertaining to just that. So that's part of it. All these rules are going to be posted on the site. We know you're probably in your car or you're listening through your iPhone or your new Android. And so when you guys get on our site, check out the contest page. Check out Kona Dog's review. He wrote up a beautiful review about the Reef Keeper Elite, and it gives you a really good idea of what it is you're winning. I really hope that the person that wins it can use it. I hate to think about this wonderful controller being plugged into a little tiny three-gallon Pico. <laughs> I'd like to see it go in one of those big systems, you know, one of those big tanks that needs a controller, and, oh, that's perfect. That would fit my tank. I'd love to hear that kind of winner. Yeah. Speaking of hearing... I was wondering if you're going to say it. Uh, the winner is going to be is going to have a guest spot on the next podcast. Yay. So there's a lot of perks. You do this blog entry, all your friends love it. You turn around, you win a controller, you get to be on a podcast. This is an awesome. Yeah, content. you don't even see. You can basically on the podcast, you can call in a Google Voice phone number, and all you have to do is sit there and talk to Mark. Just like I'm doing. You have a conversation with him about anything you want. Not really, but some important things. <laughs> anything? I think that... <laughs> I think... Jesse says anything I goes. I think that anything should go. <laughs> it's not that kind of number, Jesse. <laughs> what? <laughs> Isn't it start off with a 900? Might... My... No, oh, it doesn't. Darn. <laughs> Can't you pick your numbers? <laughs> I know, right? I'm going to change it. <laughs> no, so that's it. That's it. I think you guys are going to have a blast. I'm looking forward to seeing all the submissions. Of course, anyone's already put a blog entry on our site. That counts, too. Don't worry. We're not leaving people out. We're encouraging everyone to get involved. We hope that you guys will tell your club members. If you know someone that needs a controller and you're listening, you already have a controller. Tell your friends to get on Reef Addicts and try to win it. I mean, that's got to be better than having to spend the money, right? The actual voting period is going to last five days. So, Mark, the registration ends on midnight of February 10th. If that's when the blog entries end, when does the um, voting actually begin and end? Well, we're going to need to look at all of them to pick the top ten. But I would think we probably already have a pretty good idea where we're at right as we're coming up on the 10th. But let's just say we're going to take the 11th to organize our top ten we're going to get Ed to work his magic on the programming to make sure that the 
the polls are safe and secure and trustworthy and can't be hacked or anything crazy like that. Uh, none of this Sanjaya stuff that's going to happen on, <laughs> on Reef Addicts. <laughs> um, and it's going to be up for five days. So there's going to be plenty of time for you guys to get on there and pick your favorite one from the ten that are on there. And everyone is eligible to win except for me, Jesse, and Ed. Oh, man. I think my... That's right, Jesse. You can't win I it. think I'm my sorry. tankless referret blog is the bomb. I mean, it's really quality yeah. stuff, me complaining about not getting a tank again. Yeah, it's... um. <sighs> sorry. <laughs> nope. We're, we're staff. We're the committed ones. We don't oh, get to win this Seriously, stuff. people... It's pretty shady people, hold if, on. if I, I win personally, the contest. I will personally rig this contest for you to win. If you start a blog with a list of names that we can call our administration team that is not the committed ones that Mark seems to be insisting upon, if you can write a blog that gives us a list of names that we can call ourselves that is not that most ridiculous thing that he wants to call us, then I will personally rig this contest for you to win. Seriously. The committed ones, Mark? We are committed on so many levels. Committed on so many levels. Oh, my gosh. People. I don't know why you hate that. It makes sense. We're committed on many levels. Addicts. Committed. (laughs) Mark. Awesome. Okay. Thank you, Digital Aquatics. Thank you, Digital Aquatics. We really appreciate your sponsorship. love you. You complete me. We you love you. <laughs> wow, a Jerry Maguire reference. I didn't see that one coming either. <laughs> we went from American Idol to... <laughs> I don't know if anybody <laughs> got Jerry the American Maguire. Idol awesome. reference. I don't know. Sanjaya? Come on. Where else do you know that guy yeah, but from? I don't know. There's also Sanjay, well. though. So that's the first thing that came to my head. <laughs> oh. Okay, I was thinking about the kid that kept doing the crazy hairstyle every week. I was thinking week. about the reefer that has a bald head. And he kept getting votes. How was he getting votes? He wasn't a good singer. He was okay. It was his hair, apparently. Okay, so that's the contest. We hope that you guys are going to participate. Matter of fact, we know you're going to because you want to win this. And uh, we look forward to find out which one of you lucky people is going to be the winner. As the show is wrapping up, we do want to hit on some highlights with what's going on with Reef Addicts. Um, Jesse's got some things she wants to bring up. I want to mention that the LED article that I was very excited to see being assembled before my very eyes, because what happens is when we have someone that wants to submit an article for the site, a permanent article, we give them special access, and they can create the entire article themselves. And then we flip a switch, and it becomes live, and it's on the front page of the site where the entire world can see it. And Robert did a beautiful job creating his own tiny spotlight-type pendants of LED lighting. And you'll see the article. It's right there on the site, and it's very well made. And he put so much information in there for someone else that wants to be a DIY guy or gal and wants to make their own as well to light their tank with LED technology. 
Yeah, it was a really nice write-up, and one of the things I think he did really good was cover it with pictures, because basically, pictures can say a thousand words. If you're not really good with words, a picture, use a picture. <laughs> <laughs> you know, now speaking of pictures, Jesse's working on a really nice article, too, that's coming out very soon, and she's been chomping at the bit to release it. Yeah, so well... Probably by the time this podcast rolls out, it'll be like out any day. It is. I think that uh, I think that I'm going to become known as the uh, the picture girl because all the things that I contribute are going to be very picture heavy due to my picture taking skills. <laughs> well, I was going to say you're a great photographer, so I mean that's just a huge perk for the site. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm still learning. Yeah. But yeah, no, there's. I don't know. Pretty darn good, if you ask me. Yeah. Well, thanks. <laughs> There's a there's another <laughs> blog that actually I like that doesn't have any pictures in it, but it's um I've been kind of fascinated with the users name usernames that Refadix has has uh, put out, and um a couple a couple days ago or maybe a week ago now I uh I made a blog about my favorite usernames on Refadix, and I pointed out a few like Bleach and Vomit and Hapless Peon, um you know Polywog a couple things like that. I noticed that um, yesterday. Uh, another user created a blog called "How did you get your username?" Um, and mm-hmm. you know he goes he goes through and also mentions bleach and vomit, <laughs> which is probably one of Can my. Can you imagine that somebody's username is bleach and vomit? <laughs> I I think that it's, it's like what is that? why why is he such an angry person? <laughs> <laughs> well, then again, if you I don't know if you noticed Mark, but he calls you out and he says Milev. Again, fairly fairly straightforward, but I always wonder why the E instead of an A at the end. Or, well, I, yeah, it's... Yeah, you don't know where he wants that A. Well, no, it's the A. <laughs> Maybe I'm, he wants I'm it a... to be Mileva. No, 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 Mileva. That would suit you. No, um, I think it's going for the second letter in your name, because your name is Mark Levinson, which would be M-A-Lev. So he's mm-hmm. thinking, why me, Lev? And unless you're saying, you know, me, Mark, you, Jesse. <laughs> no, the second letter is is my middle initial. <gasps> We've cracked so the Mark, case. Me, Are you serious? Is that what it is this whole time? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Mark, I've known you for years, and I don't. And think it's not even a secret. I've been telling people that when they ask over the years, they're like, "What does it mean? What does it stand for?" I've known you for years, so, yeah. and I don't think you've Just ever name. explained that to me. Well, you've heard it here now. Well, now. Another uh, another thing Can that i Can you I'm... explain to everyone why your name is Jesse, period? It is not Jesse, period. <laughs> <laughs> my name is straight up Jesse. It was at one time. <laughs> no, my name on on RC is Jesse, period, because I was JesseCat77 for my my entire life since I was a child and i wanted to drop the cat 77 well at least in 77 whatever i'm not seven i wasn't born in 77 i'm younger than that i'm a youngin you on the other hand why did you pick 77 what was wrong with jesse cat 76 or 75 or 17 because when i was in seventh grade my soccer jersey was number 77 and that's how long ago i made that oh that's awesome that actually means something that's cool (laughs) Yeah, because nothing I do means anything, e Mark. Me <laughs> I just so anyway, I dropped it, and uh, Jesse was already taken by some 
troll on RC that was <laughs> never even there, never posted, wasn't there since like 2005 or something, and I contacted the Almighty Mods and begged them to let me take over the name, and they wouldn't let me. So I figured the most um, inconspicuous uh, character to add on to the name Jesse was a period. So I don't think anybody would have noticed it unless Mark referred to me constantly as Jesse period. <laughs> Thanks for that. It just seemed like it had to be said. I'm sure it had to be said out loud. Hey, by the way, um, while you're on the while we're recording you, I just want to thank you for designing our beautiful website. Oh, you're because welcome. you just you know you gave me a prototype you know what two months ago and said I think it should look like this and as soon as I saw it I loved it and you know Ed's been working on the back end as you know that's how it always works with programmers you never see them but they're tweaking and they're fixing and they're getting rid of bugs and Ed took your Photoshop design and turned it into a clickable website that is really working out well, well you know we've you. as of right now while we're recording this little segment we've got 376 registered members on the site and this is only the 12th so that was in 11 days flat that's that's impressive. awesome and we really we really had a very small amount of bugs i think for a site rollout the, the you know the largest the large site that we did roll out i think that we ed did a really good job and actually him being on the back end of it is actually america missing out because little do you know that Ed has the most sexy radio announcer voice that you'll ever hear. So I'm going to try my best. He really to... does. We're going to have to get him on the podcast. We're going to have to get him on the podcast because he's going to be like, he's going to be the new Barry White, the new red-headed Barry White. And that way all the lady reefers will start listening. That's, that's They're like, shut up, Mark. Let's hear Ed. Exactly. <laughs> They're like, Ed, can you call and just do my voicemail message for me? <laughs> Or or can I can I record you for my alarm in the morning telling me to wake up, please? He's gonna kill both of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We love you, Ed. Thank you all for right. all your hard work. No, Ed, you're doing a fantastic job and you know, I appreciate that he even creates little tiny widgets that I can use to report the bugs with. I mean it's just amazing. He's like, Hey, I need you guys to tell me what's wrong, so here and he creates a form. <laughs> And then I type in the little boxes, and boom, a spreadsheet starts updating with all this information. It's very interesting how he makes all this stuff work. Yeah. And it's stuff that, you know, a lot of us just take for granted. You know, we would normally just open up Notepad and type it in there and email it over. And like, no, that's not going to work for Ed. It's got to be live and instantaneous. <laughs> so we are really using a lot of the Google tools for um, making the entire site work. Yeah, you know, and, I... you know, ever since its inception. I wanted to point out how awesome I think that Refatix is because we're totally with 2010 with everything that we're doing on the back end. We're using Google Voice to record podcasts from across the United States. We're using Google Wave to coordinate, you know, collaborative articles and in all kinds of, you know, to-do lists and things like that. I mean, I'm pretty impressed with us and I'm, you know, part of us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed with this, too. No, seriously, it's been really nice to be able to do this stuff and not just have to, you know, do like a teleconference and, you know, a lot of typing on the fly trying to just keep notes or minutes of what we're discussing. You know, these these other, other systems that have become available are really a huge benefit to making this all work. And, you know, we've been able to, you know, use YouTube and we're using Twitter and soon, well, as of now, we're finally on iTunes. 
Facebook. And yeah, we're going to use FeedBurner. We're going to use all these different ways to get information out. You know, Facebook too. I mean, the whole thing <clears throat> all just works together because people like different genres. And so we're trying to combine all the best of everything into one website. You know, my dream is that you guys are going to love it. So hopefully it'll just keep getting bigger and better with all kinds of new things that we've got in the works that we've got planned. Some of it you kind of have clues because they're on the site but they're not live yet. Other things aren't even on there yet. They're going to suddenly appear and you guys are going to be blown away. Blown away! So that's pretty much it. I'm not going to tell you anything else. I don't want to say anything else because then I feel like I'm giving them promises and yeah, I'm not doing that. Well, before we get off the subject of giving shout-outs, I think it's important that we say thank you to everybody who's signing up on their um, local clubs. Hopefully you guys are finding each other and you're going to start you know, making those little areas your own personal get-togethers and communities. And I want to point out um, or give an extra special shout-out to Indiana Marine Aquarium Society who has brought over 21 members and they have 21 members in their little group. So thanks to those guys. Yeah, it's, for it's really cool because we've got all these clubs on there. And you can find your own club, or if you haven't found a club in your area, you'll find it on our list, hopefully. And you can actually gather up your, your buddies into that zone, and that way when you have announcements that pertain to your club, you'll be able to just hit it really quick. You can link it into our calendar system, and that way everyone else can find out across the nation what's going on. So there's a lot of nice features that are happening here, and you know it's just a matter of discovering how it all works and you know navigating your way through the site. But we've tried to keep it easy to find everything. We didn't want to bury anything to the point where you couldn't, you know, click on it and get there with one or two clicks. And so far, we're doing a really good job. It's totally different from Milo's Reef, where you had to go to Sitemap to find anything. <laughs> I wonder why. So that's pretty much it. Yeah. No, I. You know, we aren't going to pick out certain usernames and embarrass them on the podcast. That would be wrong, plant guy. But I do want to point out that, you know, there's, <laughs> there's all kinds of fun people on there. Plant guy. <laughs> oh, yeah, I said it twice. Now I feel really bad because he's going to notice I said it. <laughs> We've got lots of interesting discussions going on from discussing ballasts and what to do for lighting to just how to plumb in a system. Um, we've seen some really in-depth blog articles or, or blog entries, one that was even promoted, like Jesse said before, into an actual article as part of our permanent database. And that's going to keep happening. When these blogs are really noteworthy, they're going to be featured. So this site becomes y'all's community site. It's not going to be controlled just by me. I don't. That was never my plan. And matter of fact, Ed and Jesse both told me, you can't be doing everything, Mark. <laughs> and you're right. It's not supposed to be about me. It's supposed to be Reef Addicts. There's a lot of us out there. We're all addicted to this hobby, and we all want to just have a place where we can hang out and have a lot of fun. And that's the whole point of the site. You know this. Yeah.